The perfect tater tot hot dish consists of hamburger. So let's raise your hand here. Raise your hands if you're in agreement as we go along. Hamburger, tater tots, cream of mushroom soup, corn, and we're done. Right? We got green beans. I heard cheese over here. Never seen cheese in tater tot hot dish. I heard peas. I mean, how can you possibly have an ideal hot dish with that much stuff? Why can't you just stick with the basics, with what works? Well, what's your ideal Sunday night consist of? What does your ideal Sunday night consist of? Maybe it's breakfast for supper on Sunday night. Maybe it's pizza. For me, the ideal Sunday night is popcorn, six ice cubes, and Mountain Dew, and just enjoying some episodes of In Heat of the Night. So, the perfect Sunday night. I'm sure that you have a vision as well for what's your perfect Sunday night. All of us have different visions of that which is ideal. We have the ideal family vacation. We have the ideal job. We have the ideal hot dish. And we have the ideal Sunday night. All of us have different visions of what is ideal. Well, this morning, we want to answer the question, what does the ideal Christian life consist of? What does the perfect Christian life consist of? Not how do you become a Christian, but when you are a Christian, what does the ideal Christian life consist of? In other words, what's the goal, what's the primary goal of the Christian life? The Apostle Paul is laying out for us in a very simple sentence today. He basically gives one exhortation where he says, this is the Christian life. This is what the Christian life consists of. Up to this point, as we've studied Colossians, we haven't received any commands yet. And this is important to recognize because so often when we read the Bible, so many people think of the Bible, they think, oh, it's just rule after rule. Well, up to this point in the book of Colossians, this letter, we haven't heard a single command yet. Everything in chapter 1 has been Paul saying, hey, God has done this. Praise Him. It has also been, hey, Jesus is this. And now is the first time in the letter where we actually get an exhortation where Paul says, okay, do this. A lot of times the Bible's written that way where it talks about what God has done and who God is. And then it says, okay, in response to that, do this. And that simple exhortation that we get today in Colossians 2 verse 6 is basically Paul saying, hey, this is the Christian life. Well, the Christian life, according to the Apostle Paul, can be summarized very simply from Colossians 2 6, this, walk in Him. Verse 2, it says, so walk in Him. In other words, he's saying, walk with Jesus. This is the first command we receive. He's saying, hey, walk with Jesus. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the Christian life. Why is he saying what seems to be obvious. I mean, the Christian life, Christ, of course we walk with Christ. Well, because the people that are receiving this letter are starting to fall into all sorts of weird stuff. And so Paul's reminding them, hey, get back to basics. How many of you would have gotten an A if they would have graded you at study hall? Nobody would have gotten an A in study hall? Wow. I, I agree. I think I would have gotten an F in study hall. Because in study hall, what are you supposed to do? Study. 
but who studies in study hall? I mean, come on, but the teacher's always like what? Hey, knock it off over there. Study. This is study hall. Paul was doing the exact same thing in this letter here at Colossians. He's saying, hey, knock it off. What are you doing? This is Christianity. Get back to Jesus. Walk with Jesus. It's because people had started to follow all sorts of weird ideas. They started to add other things to Jesus. And when you add something to Jesus, so you have Jesus plus something, guess what? You no longer have Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals no Jesus. Because Christianity is Jesus. And Paul's saying, hey, 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 get back to walking with Jesus. Some of you have fallen back into some religious ways, which you might say, why is Paul banging on religion? Isn't the Bible a religious book? It is a religious book, but it's a vastly different religious book. Paul is saying here, hey, hey, some of you are returning to your old religious activity where you had rules that was like, don't do this on this day, don't touch this, don't say that. You forget those rules. Get back to Jesus. So what was happening was there was weird ideas that existed and the people hadn't figured out how to follow Jesus without having those weird ideas change their Jesus. So this is kind of the situation. The people in this city called Colossae have heard about Jesus Christ. But at the same time of hearing about Jesus Christ, there's other ideas in their city. So for example, on one street corner, there would have been a small temple, very small little temple, but it wasn't built by the Jews giving praise to the God of Israel. It was actually built by the Roman Empire. They put these small little temples in different places, basically to remind everyone, hey, the Roman Empire is in charge. So on one corner, you've got a small temple that's what? Built to Rome. On another corner, you've got a tent. And in this tent, you've got people that are doing what we would label as magic or witchcraft. So you've got people in a tent saying, hey, stop in. Let me tell you your future. So you'd stop in and look at your palm or you'd tell them when you were born and then they would tell you something about what's going to happen to you. Kind of like the horoscope that we've got in the magazine newspaper today. They had right on the street corner, come in and have it told to you. So there's a lot of different religious ideas that existed in the city. So when they started following Jesus, some of them were struggling like, well, how does this idea change Jesus? And Paul's writing to them saying, hey, 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 stop. You need to examine some of these other ideas. So look with me in Colossians 2, verse 8. So he says to them, hey, get back to Jesus. And then in verse 8 he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, there's these weird ideas that are being promoted about Jesus or weird philosophies in general. You need to examine them. You need to see if they're from Christ. You need to see if they're consistent with Christ. Now, the ideas and the philosophies that existed back then aren't exactly the same ideas and philosophies that we're battling today. But all of us are battling different ideas and philosophies every single day. Nobody hears about Jesus in a vacuum, and then all other ideas just leave. Every day, there's a different philosophy and idea that's attacking our minds, that's attacking our hearts. 
And so we've got to examine those ideas. So I want to mention two ideas that are alive and well today that are having major impact on us as a church, us as Christians, and our society. The first idea that's alive and well today is that Jesus is one of many options. So it's very common today and very popular to say, today say, yeah, a man named Jesus lived, he was a great moral teacher, and that Jesus leads a movement that will be one pathway that can get you to God. But at the same time is, there's some other people that are just as good as Jesus, that are divine as well, and they can bring you to God. So Jesus is one of many options. This is an idea that's alive and well in our culture. It's called pluralism. Well, Paul would have something to say about that. We see it actually in the next verse, Colossians 2, verse 9. He says this, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Very simply, Paul is saying this, Hey, in Jesus the human is the full divinity as well, which means this, that Jesus is fully God. If Jesus is fully God, no one else can be God. So Paul's saying, hey, you're getting these strange ideas about these other gods. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me remind you that Christ is fully divine. Jesus is the only God. He is the only creator. He is the only one worthy of worship. So when we hear different ideas pop up, we've always got to look at it through the lens of one God with one pathway to God. Now, that sounds really mean. That sounds like just really judgmental towards someone else. But here's the reality. If Jesus truly is God, he gets to set the standard. If we get to define Jesus, guess, well, then he's not God anymore. Then we're just creating someone or something for ourselves. So if you want to switch Jesus a little bit, just at least admit this, that you're creating a God that you can agree with, rather than the God who's revealed in scriptures. And also the God that's revealed in scripture, is he the only God? Yes, but he's vastly different than all other gods that are even promoted or mentioned. All other gods that are promoted or mentioned say this, you've got to be good or you've got to go through this process to get to me. The God that's revealed in the Bible says, hey, I'll come to you and I will make you good. So is it mean? Is it very focused? Absolutely. But we're just letting God speak for himself. But then when you actually look at the activity of God, it's very loving of how he handles it. So one idea that exists today is that Jesus is one of many. The second idea that exists today that's changing our view of Christianity and Jesus is there's this idea that when Jesus came, he threw out the law. This is not just an idea in society. This is an idea in seminaries taught to future pastors. That when Jesus came, he basically said, hey, you know, I know God gave you the Ten Commandments and, and God gave you this law, Israel, but that hasn't worked so well. And so I've come on behalf of God to show you love because the law really didn't show you love. So can, you can forget the law because I'm here now and really everything goes through me. I, the law is gone. This is, this is an interesting thought pattern, but it's alive and well, and it creeps into all of our lives. But I want to show you that Jesus said something vastly different. So turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of Jesus' beginning of his ministry. He gathers all the people around him, religious people and irreligious people and his followers. Matthew 5, 17, he says this, opening his sermon basically. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That just does not sound to me like a Jesus who's saying, hey, that Ten Commandments stuff, it's done. Don't worry about it anymore. I'm coming with something new. When Jesus says he fulfills the law, what he means is this, is that he obeys it completely. So Jesus is the first ever human being that obeys the Ten Commandments in perfection. He's the only one to ever fulfill all of the commands that were given by God. He doesn't say, hey, I fulfilled them, don't worry about them anymore. Now the point is this, he fulfilled them so that he can be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That doesn't mean the law is done away with. There's no such thing as a lawless Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. Now, I want to help you understand then, because you're going to hear the argument, well, no, 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 no. Jesus, the law is done. So here's the way the argument goes. They say that when Jesus is giving this message, he's talking to a Jewish group. And so therefore, he doesn't want to say something derogatory against the law. Because if Jesus says something derogatory against the law, what's going to happen? The Jews are going to kick him out. They're going to say, we want nothing to do with this guy. We're not going to listen to him anymore. So he says this to kind of appease them. But that's an interesting position, and that would allow you then to say Jesus doesn't really mean it. The problem with that position is the rest of the historical record that we have about Jesus. Because the rest of the historical record is pretty clear that Jesus is willing to speak against the Jews, not once, but multiple times. So if if this is Jesus being nice to the Jews, he changes very quickly. And you could even look at documents outside of the Bible that would have a man named Jesus that lived, and he's not exactly nice to the Jews. So if you're going to hold this position, you, you have to admit at least freely that what? You're just redefining the Jesus that we have historically recorded for us in a variety of documents. It's the only way it works. Now, most people are willing to do that. We just have to acknowledge they're changing the historical Jesus that's been recorded for us, not just in the Bible, but in other places as well. This is a crazy idea that Jesus comes, the law is gone, and it's basically, hey, as long as you love Jesus, anything is good to go. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus comes, and Jesus says, I fulfill the law, and basically when you look at me, you see the perfect resemble of what your life should look like. And we're going to see that as we look on here in the book of Colossians, that Jesus is not in the business of saying, hey, just do whatever you want. No, 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 no. Jesus is authoritative. Jesus has a plan. Jesus has desires for our lives. So, Paul says, hey, the Christian life is about following Jesus. It's walking with Christ. It's not all this religious stuff. So be careful when you get all these weird ideas that come and make sure that you adjust your thinking by Jesus, not the other ideas. Judge the ideas by Jesus. Don't judge Jesus 
based off of the different ideas and philosophies. So now Paul says, okay, walk with Jesus, stay with Jesus. So now we turn back to Colossians chapter 2, and we say, well, what does it really mean to walk with Jesus? If the ideal Christian life, if the essence of the Christian life is walking with Jesus, what does that mean? Because I, we can't physically walk with Jesus today. Is this just a nice little slogan? Well, let's flush it out a little bit. What does he mean, walk with Jesus? Look with me in Colossians chapter 3. He really now starts to get into the nitty-gritty of flushing out what it means. He says this, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So Paul is saying, hey, you used to walk this way. But now notice what he says. That's how you used to walk. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, da-da-da-da-da. Do not lie to one another. Now verse 10, he says this. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, after the image of its creator. In other words, Paul is saying this. Hey, to walk with Jesus is to actually be clothed in the character of Jesus. The, the essence of the Christian life is looking like Jesus. It can be just brought down to this simple statement. To live the Christian life is to look like Jesus. That's what Paul's arguing for here. Hey, put away that other stuff. Put away that malice and that anger. Why? Because it does not reflect the image of your Creator. It, it does not properly reflect the image of Jesus. And Christianity is all about Jesus. You want to live the Christian life? Look like Jesus. So this morning, you hear this message, there's a danger. You could hear this, do, do, do. This is what you have, you have, to, you have to do these things to become a Christian. Not at all true. Not at all true. We walk with Jesus from a position of security, from a firm foundation. Go back with me to verse 7 in chapter 2. This is critical. This is an aha moment. This is an aha that can change your mentality. This can change your day-to-day -day experience. The Christian life is not earning the approval of God. The Christian life is walking with the approval of God. Look with me, verse 7 in Colossians 2, it says this. So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Now, this is where Bible translation gets difficult, but it's important to understand. You could read this by saying, that's right, walk with Jesus, get rooted with Jesus and built up in Jesus. You could read it that way. However, we're reading English, which is translated from Greek, written 2,000 years ago. This is where it gets tough. The actual wording of Greek, if you've got a New American Standard Bible, it just translates it word for word. And it says this, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. Having been firmly rooted. It's reminding the readers, hey, hey you're rooted in Jesus. Your foundation is Jesus. So build on that foundation. Your security is in Christ. There is no security that we gain by good works, our obedience to Jesus. Our security is in that Christ has called us and we've expressed faith in Him. Having been rooted in Him. Today, say, no, say goodbye insecurity because you're secure in Christ. Christians should be confident. Too many Christians are walking around like they're on parole. 
Too many Christians are walking around with no boldness at all, wondering if God loves them, wondering if God has authorized them to do whatever. Guess what? God has authorized you. God loves you. God approves of you. You're rooted in Him. It's not something you earn. It's not something you dig in. It's done. And security is so important for all of us to live a healthy life. John Maxwell did an interesting study about leadership. He was trying to understand what makes an employee perform well and what makes an employee really get creative. And what makes an employee get really creative? It was interesting. He had two things. One is pay, right? More money is going to make someone perform better. The second thing was, hey, the opportunity for advancement. So if you get more responsibility, it's actually going to cause you to perform better. Those were the two assumptions they were working with. But what John Maxwell found out was this. It's actually not more pay, and it's actually not more responsibility or advancement. It is a boss that approves of you. What John Maxwell found was that when you have a boss who he says has your back, you actually perform at a level beyond anything, and you're actually more creative when you have a boss who affirms you and who has your back. And he had an interesting study that he points to. He points to the company 3M. 3M is a huge company, as many of you probably know. 3M invented Post-it notes. That invention of the Post-it note did not come from the company saying, hey, we need to come up with this note thing. What happened was in 1974, a man was using his 15% company time. 3M gives their employees 15% of their time to do personal research and development, whatever they want. It doesn't have to have doesn't have to benefit the company, just whatever. Just spend time researching, creating stuff. Well, the guy just, 1974, invented the post-it note because he was given the freedom. He knew his boss said, hey, just go and try different stuff. And what came out of that for 3M was what? The post-it note. You think 3M has made a little bit of money from the post-it note? Google has done the exact same thing. Do you know why you have Gmail today and Google Earth and Google Labs? Because Google said to their employees, hey, take 20% of your time. Just do whatever. Research, play, do whatever. The boss is saying, hey, I have confidence in you. When you have confidence, what do you do? You go. You're creative. You're confident. We need Christians who are creative and confident who are going, you know what? I'm going to take risks. I know God lives me, so I'm going to do stuff that others may say is questionable, but I know I've got God's approval already. You have got security in Christ. Self-esteem should not be an issue in the church, but sadly it is. We've got to take our eyes off ourselves because you cannot solve your self-esteem issues by looking inside deeper. There's only one way to solve self-esteem issues, to look to someone bigger, Jesus himself. And when you have your security in Jesus, you have confidence Today you are secure in Christ because you're already rooted in Him when you express faith in Him. This Christian life stuff is messy. It's dirty. It's not easy. The essence of the Christian life is to look like Jesus because we're rooted in Jesus. Therefore, what kind of fruit are you going to bear? If your roots are in Jesus, you're going to look like Jesus. Religion is actually a lot easier than Jesus. Religion is a lot easier 
than Christianity. Because in a religion, you can say this, hey, don't work on this day, celebrate this festival, don't touch this, don't eat that. And then guess what? You don't do those things, and it's like, I've got confidence, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person. So people say all the time, I hear this all the time, oh, I'm not a very good Christian pastor, I know I haven't been there for a couple of weeks. It has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Your church attendance flows out of your relationship. Your church attendance does not make you a better Christian. Religion is easy. This Jesus stuff is messy because guess what? It's not always clear. So I want to finish with a challenge for us as a congregation and us as individuals. A couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to travel to Chicago. And as I traveled to Chicago, working with a couple of nonprofits and churches there, had an opportunity to go and visit a laundromat. This laundromat was in a really tough neighborhood. This laundromat was started by a church. The laundromat was actually right next to a Muslim community center. And I said, well, this is interesting. How did, how did you guys end up as neighbors? Well, what happened was the Muslim community center got started, and there was some rumbling starting around the community that they were asking the city kind of commission council to say, hey, no more crosses on the buildings because it's starting to offend the new neighbors that we have moving in. So there's this big movement. You know, we gotta, can't put crosses up anymore. Well, of course, some Christians didn't like that too much, right? The cross is a big deal to us, and rightfully so. The cross is a big deal. So the suburban church says, hey, I'll tell you what, we're going to show them. We're going to take a stand. So the church buys a building next to the Muslim community center. What does the church put on the building? Cross. Suburban church. Oh, yeah. We're, it's right. You tell us not to put a cross up. Let's well, show the Muslim community what's going on. Muslim church buys the building, puts the cross on it, and then rents the building out to just some other random entity. This other church says, what's going on here? This is weird. One of the members says, hey, what do you think we should do? Leaders kind of think about it for a while, and they said, hey, what if we buy that laundromat that's on the other side of the Muslim community center? Great idea. What if we schedule our church members to be at the laundromat every night of the week. Great idea. They buy the laundromat. They have their members working in the laundromat, just being there every night of the week. Which church do you think saw more conversions through their ministry? The one who bought a building and put up a cross and said, we're right, we're taking a stand. Or the church that said, we're going to live out the cross and go and be in the laundromat. I mean, the cross can give you some confidence and it can give you a sense of security. We're in a safe place. But our confidence doesn't come from a symbol. Our confidence comes from Jesus himself. My point this morning is not to say that crosses are bad. That's not the point at all. The point is, where are we drawing our confidence from? Is it in religious activity and religious symbolism? Or does our confidence come from Jesus Christ himself? Are we going to be religious people who say, we've taken a stand, we've put up a cross? Or are we going to be Jesus people who go and say, we're not going to dilute the message of the cross at all, but we're going to speak it boldly, not putting anything up 
that might be obstructions in people's way. And we're going to go and live and be among people because we're going to walk with Jesus. We have to examine our hearts. We have to examine our minds. And we have to ask, am I walking with Jesus or am I playing a religious game? The essence of the Christian life is walking with Jesus because Jesus has come and walked with humanity. The essence of the Christian life is looking like Jesus for He is our perfect Creator and Redeemer. Go forth this next week and wear a cross. But as you wear that cross, make sure you boldly proclaim the message of that cross in your actions, and in your words. Let us pray. God, help us to look like Jesus. God, help us have confidence in you. This morning, O oh Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would embolden us. God, I pray for anyone this morning that's struggling with self-esteem. God, I ask that you'd capture their minds right now, that you would give them security of heart, give them security of mind because of you in Christ. God, this morning I pray for any of us who have things in our lives that don't look like Jesus. God, change us, transform us. God, mold us and shape us. God, help our church to look like Jesus. Help us as individuals to look like Jesus. God, thank you for coming to us. Embolden us now to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.